Today is Monday, September 18th, 2023. This is Quick Start from CBN News. I'm Dan Andros. Revival at college campuses continues. We'll have that top story and more on today's podcast, where we bring you news from a Christian perspective. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a rating. You can email us if you'd like to weigh in with your thoughts or just say hello. Quick Start Podcast at CBN. Dot org. Joining me now to get through the news with Cray on this Monday morning, Billy Hallowell. What's going on, Billy? Happy Monday. Happy Monday. I'm, I'm ready to go. I'm pumped. Yeah. A lot to get through, as always, on the podcast to kick off your week. We're glad you're here with us. Uh, we have, what do we have coming up on the Focus Story? Yeah, we're going to be talking about this Connecticut school district that used to open with prayer. Apparently, it was one of the only districts to do that in Connecticut. And after a complaint from one of our well-known atheist organizations, they are no longer offering prayers before their school board meeting. So we'll get into that. All right. Looking forward to that. On the main thing, we've got a recent report that Madison Seals is going to be looking into that sheds some disturbing light on transgender women, that's men, and sexual assault. First, we are going to get through the news here in 90 seconds. Former Vice President Mike Pence said he firmly believes that there is no greater threat to America's future than the collapse of the traditional family. He said this while talking at the Family Research Council's Pray, Vote, Stand Summit on Friday. Pence is obviously running for the Republican nomination for president in 2024. And he lamented that there is, uh, that the share of never married adults has tripled since 1980, while you combine that with the declining U.S. birth rates. And he said, we will elect leaders from the White House to the State House who will champion the traditional family without apology. Former President Trump, he lashed out at Ron DeSantis on the abortion issue, saying that it was a terrible mistake to sign the abortion legislation that he did. Trump promised that he'd sit down with both sides and, quote, negotiate something and we'll end up with peace on the issue that we haven't had for the first time in 52 years. DeSantis hit backs and we've already seen disastrous results of the trump compromising with democrats seven trillion in new debt we don't need that now and a texas youth pastor says an outpouring of revival is taking place among students at texas a&m corpus christi and it shows no signs of slowing down as hundreds have already given their lives to jesus and others are getting water baptized almost daily you can read more about that over at cbn news Com. Billy, obviously the political stuff is just going to keep heating up here and Trump and DeSantis going back and forth on this abortion issue. It's, it's a really interesting dynamic because you're starting to see now the Republican Party sort of divide after what happened during the midterms. Yeah, and this is all about politics, right? The ability to win. And so because this is a complicated issue, you know, they're looking at polls, I think, and these politicians are making, suddenly they're making decisions based on polling. I, I would remind everybody, you know, and I think pro-lifers have been championing and cheering this, the fact that 
you know, Trump is the one who nominated Supreme Court justices, right, who overturned Roe v. Wade, right? So, and so it is interesting, but I, I think there's a real push to kind of backtrack to a degree to find a common ground on the, on this issue. And that's going to, that's going to create a lot of, I think, divides within the Republican party as, as this election comes up, because abortion is actually, you know, a lot of people thought, Oh, it's, it's going to be settled. It's not settled. It's probably a bigger issue than ever right now. So yeah, yeah I'm kind of interested to see how this shakes out. It could become sort of a litmus test of sorts for a lot of conservatives. Cause it's not like a tax issue or something like that, that's just kind of, well, let's see, let's set it the best place we can set it. You're talking about the ending of unborn life, where Christians and a lot of conservatives believe that this is the ending of a human life. And so to just say, well, the polls aren't so good on it, you know, it, it just doesn't, it doesn't land right um, in a lot of ways, because uh, we're talking about human life here. And so it's one of those issues that you don't want to necessarily be led by the polls in general, right? At least a lot of conservatives, a lot of Christians are going to feel that way. That's one of those issues where you kind of say, damn the torpedoes, and we have to kind of go with it because if we actually believe what we're saying here and that these are human beings in the womb, well, I, I don't want to be led by polls. But, but so yeah. I think you might see a divide here because I do think there are a lot of people who just would rather say, hey, wait a minute, we got to go with what's going to get us in the office and then we can, you know, make these decisions, get these laws passed, et cetera. And so yeah. it's going to be an interesting divide for sure to see it play out and see how, how exactly heated that part of it gets. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this goes back to the midterms. You know, everybody expected that big red right. wave, the right. red wave didn't come. And so a lot of the pollsters said, look, it's, it's because abortion is a complicated issue. The majority of the country a lot of people don't like the the heartbeat bills, right? But that's politics. What you're talking about is conviction. You know, if you're, yeah. you're going to run on conviction, do you lead with your conviction or do you lead with politics? And of course, let's keep in mind here, Trump is talking about DeSantis. He's going after DeSantis yeah. who signed that that heartbeat bill, right, in Florida, who's pushing that heartbeat bill. And so there, there's that factor too. But, I, you know, look, politics is so ugly and gross because people follow the polls. They don't yeah. follow conviction. So, you know, yeah, I think it is going to be a litmus test. Um, what I'm waiting to really see is how are all the pro-life, you know, over the next couple of days, there's going to be a real, I think, reaction from a lot of these groups. And I'm really intrigued to see where they go, because let's face it, in a Trump-Biden matchup, Trump is going to be their choice. So how do you navigate this now? Right. Yeah. It's certainly going to be interesting to watch unfold. We'll keep an eye on it, of course. And we're going to head over to the focus story for now. And the story you mentioned at the top, Billy, a Connecticut school board, they've reportedly halted prayers before board meetings following a complaint from, quote, a concerned community member along with an atheist organization. So what happened here? Yeah, the Freedom From Religion Foundation, they're based out in Madison, Wisconsin, but they have members all over the country. You know, they'll often fire off these letters, you know, when there's something they don't like. And apparently this concerned community member contacted them because the Enfield School District, um, they had been, I don't know for how long, but for quite some time, opening with prayer before their board meetings. And so this citizen did not like that. 
And, you know, the Freedom From Religion Foundation reached out with a letter. Basically, uh, from what we could tell, the letter was the, earlier this year, February. I'm asking them to stop this prayer practice. And on August 31st, the Freedom From Religion Foundation put out a statement um, noting that prayer had been removed, that they had been able to get prayer removed from those board meetings. And they called the practice of invoking God at those meetings, quote, offensive. Very interesting. What did the Freedom From Religion Foundation, what did they end up arguing? Yeah, I mean, their argument essentially was that it put non-believers in you know a difficult position. You know, it's essentially pushing prayer on people. You know, they 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 essentially this is the argument that they will routinely make, and it is it is interesting because you know, prayer, and they actually even shared in their letter one of the prayers, so you can kind of read, they went back to 2022, and, you know, by by the way, it seems like the people who were praying, you know, this prayer before government meetings is a really common thing, but the way that this one was working, instead of inviting community members to pray, from, from what I understand, it was board members who would open in prayer, so the actual board members were the ones praying. Um, and apparently these prayers were overtly, you know, Christian prayers, which, you know, that that's always going to rile the Freedom From Religion Foundation when, when it's, you know, sectarian, as, as they'll call it. So um, they called it beyond the scope of a public school board to include invocations, right? That this is not the work of a, of a school board, which, you know, it, it's interesting because as Christians, right, when we pull back, from that argument and you look at, okay, we, every institution, everything that we do in life, you know, wanting to cover it in prayer, right? That's what Christians believe. You believe in the power of prayer. So from the perspective of those praying before these school board meetings, you're dealing with sensitive, important, you know, what's more important than how we raise up our kids, right? And so offering prayer for that. But of course, from the atheist perspective, this has no place at all in these meetings. Yeah, very you know, it's typical of the Freedom From Religion Foundation. They they make a habit of, of finding these things and going after them. Uh, why do you think we need to have our eyes on this, Billy? You know, when, when you're talking about a, a school district here in Connecticut, what do you think this matters for on the largest, larger scope? Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I was going to add one more thing, too, here, because they called it coercive, embarrassing, and intimidating for non-religious citizens, right? Because in their yeah. view... And, and, you know, like they're saying, look, the school board believes in prayer. These people don't. And you feel like you're forced into it because if you don't stand up or if you don't pray and people see it, you're going to feel weird. Um, But why does this matter? I mean, look, this goes back. I said prayer is not a new thing. We've interviewed U.S. Senate Chaplain Barry Black. He's the chaplain for the U.S. Senate. He is on staff, you know, with the U.S. government, and he has served in that role since 2003. The U.S. has had a congressional chaplaincy in the Senate since 1789, okay? So Hmm. this is not new. Prayer before government meetings has gone on forever. Um, At the Constitutional Convention in 1787, Ben Franklin talked about the importance of prayer, and it was one of the first things that the new legislative branch started to do in 1789. So this is not new. I think, though, this is an interesting circumstance because it's a school board and you may have students there. And whenever you bring students into the mix, right, you have, you know, a different way of handling this. Prayer has, you know, Greece versus Galloway was a 2014 Supreme Court case about prayer at government meetings. And the Supreme Court sided with the town of Greece. The town was sued 
over allowing invocations, but the court said, no, invocations can happen as long as people aren't being, you know, forced to do it, as long as it's not being pushed on people. And as long as you're inviting everybody from the community, you know, of different faiths, you have a schedule, right, to pray. Um, and so anyway, it's important because I do think there's a distinction there. We just had, we just had the coach case last year, right? Coach Joe yeah. Kennedy. Um, so if you are compelling kids, though, which we don't know that that was happening here, it does change the dynamic, right? The court may look at it a little differently when children are involved in it. So it's important, though, because I think at the end of the day, the atheists are going to keep pushing back on prayer endlessly. There will never be enough Supreme Court cases justifying it that will make them stop going after it. Yeah. So, yeah. But to your point, it's nothing new. And uh, I just have to I just have to take a moment, Billy, and read the first prayer of the Continental Congress in 1774. You mentioned a couple other, you know, instances, the the 1789 prayer and everything else. Uh just just listen to the language of this. And I mean, of course, this is in the midst of, you know, trying to establish America as a country and, you know, if things are very uncertain at this point, obviously. And I I just have to read this. Ready? O Lord, our heavenly Father, high and mighty King of kings and Lord of lords, who dost from thy throne behold all the dwellers in the earth and reignest with power supreme and uncontrolled over all the kingdoms, empires and governments look down mercy, look down in mercy, we beseech thee on these our American states who have fled to thee from the rod of their oppressor and thrown themselves on thy gracious protection. And it goes on and on and on. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read just the very last line. All this we ask in the name and through the merits of Jesus Christ, thy son and savior. So that's from the Reverend Jacob Duche from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, September 7, 1774 to kick off the First Continental Congress. And it's just, you know, you read that and it's like you look at these organizations that just want to get prayer out of there. And it's you, you on the one hand, you think, well, OK, you don't want to force people to do stuff. And it's like, well, on the other hand, how about just listen to it and move on with your day? <laughs> I, I don't know. Well, yeah. And, and, you know, well, and I just wanted to, there's one more thing too here, you know, Barry Black, the Senate chaplain, he, he quoted Benjamin Franklin and it's not yeah. an exact quote, but I looked it up. It's pretty close. Benjamin Franklin said, gentlemen, I'm a very old man, but I have lived long enough to know that if a sparrow cannot fall without God knowing it, that a Republic cannot rise without his assistance. And that was an argument made surrounding prayer, you know, at the constitutional convention. So, yeah, it's I mean, this is something that our founders recognized, even if they weren't all evangelical right. Christians, they recognized the importance of. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's something that, hey, look, if you don't go along with it, that's fine. That's your choice. But it, this idea that Freedom From Religion Foundation and others like them have that you just can't mention God, that you, you can't. Oh, there's no mention of that God person here on any of these government lands. I mean, that is just. To me, such a faulty premise, especially when you look at the founders, who are the ones that established those rules and laws of our country here, didn't seem to have Freedom From Religion Foundation's uh, same view on it, just judging by the prayers they offered in government. Yeah. And I think, again, this is not going to stop. And so... If people and, you know, like if we believe in the power of prayer, why are we not covering our kids, our school boards in it? And right. that's not Christian nationalism. No. That's just, you know, we are Christians. We care and we want to appeal to God, you know, for in everything we do. So I think yeah. You know, now now the school board did, again, 
cave, apparently cave on this now, but, but they didn't necessarily, they're not offering the open prayer, but they've, what they're offering is a moment of silence. Right. And I think that's been an interesting move on a lot of these school, you know, look, Christy Nome was pushing that in South Dakota that they would open every day with, you know, silence. And so it's interesting. It is interesting. And we'll see how these things continue to play out in the courts, but it's always as interesting as uh, we just touched on here to look back on our history and see how the founders did it. And what, what did they think? And so we'll, again, we'll continue to see how these sorts of things play out across the country. So appreciate you putting that one uh, on our radar on the podcast today, Billy. No problem. All right. We're going to head over to the main thing now. And a recent report shows that more than half of the men housed in the Wisconsin Department of Corrections facilities who identify as transgender women, they've also been convicted of at least one count of sexual assault or abuse. Madison Seals talked to Daily Signal senior reporter Mary Margaret Olihan about some of the significant details uncovered in this investigation. That's today's main thing. As part of the Heritage Foundation's oversight project, you took a closer look at biological male inmates at Wisconsin's Department of Corrections who were seeking transfers to female prisons by saying that they identified as transgender females. So what did you find out? Yes, so the Heritage Foundation's oversight project, they filed a lawsuit asking for, and FOIA is asking for information about these men who are saying that they identify as women uh, so that they can get special treatment in these prisons. So the Wisconsin um, Department of Corrections handed over data to the oversight project, which we published. Um, And that data shows that a little more than half of the men who are housed in Wisconsin Department of Corrections facilities who identify as trans women have been convicted of at least one count of sexual assault or sexual abuse. So that means a little over half the men who are saying that they're women and they're in Wisconsin Department of Corrections facilities have been convicted of a sexual assault or sexual abuse, Um, which is crazy because uh, these men we know are trying to be housed in women's prisons. Right. And that percentage is so high that it's just it's hard to believe that this is coincidence. The department noted that prisoners may have been convicted of additional offenses that are not sex offenses. But the majority of the ones claiming transgenderism, as you mentioned, are convicted of sexual assault. So just to be clear, when it comes to sex offenses, what kind of offenses are we talking about here? Yeah, so they also, they gave us a list of what crimes that these people might have committed, these men. So those include sexual exploitation of a child, sexual exploitation by a therapist, forced viewing of a sexual act, rape, sexual intercourse without consent, incest, uh, sexual intercourse with a child, indecent behavior with a child, enticing a child, and more. So those are just some of the um, some of the offenses that these men may have committed to merit, uh, you know, being convicted of at least one count of sexual assault or sexual abuse. The Daily Signal reached out to the Wisconsin Department of Corrections to clarify whether or not they are indeed housing biological males in female prisons. How did the Wisconsin Department of Corrections respond to your request? Well, we know that we they have those numbers. We know we know they do. That that is standard practice. They of course have these numbers. But when I asked, um, the the head of communications over there would not get back to me um, about whether the Wisconsin Department of Corrections houses biologically male inmates in female prisons. And again, we know that they know. They just don't want to tell us. Um, 
And the deputy director of communications referred me to the Wisconsin Department of Corrections policy index. Well, I went back to him multiple times. We gave him over 24 hours to get us responses on this, and he would not. I think he is well aware that this is a politically fraught issue, and he doesn't want headlines about it. Now, you know, we're going to still be asking him (laughs) uh, for more information on this. But as of right now, we don't know how many men are in women's prisons in Wisconsin. We also don't know how many of those men who have been convicted of sexual assaults are in women's prisons. And that's a figure we definitely should know. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And there's also some speculation about Mark Campbell. So you asked the Wisconsin DOC about Mark Campbell, who is a biological male who now identifies as a woman and goes by Nicole Campbell. What do you know about that situation there? Yes. Yeah, so like you were saying, this is a man who identifies as a woman and goes by Nicole. He admitted to raping his own daughter and he was sentenced to 34 years in prison. Um, and in 2020, a federal judge ruled that he could have taxpayer funded gender transition surgery. So he's a man. He wants surgery to make him aesthetically appear like a woman and could be moved to a women's prison while he was waiting that awaiting that surgery. But we don't know if he was moved or not. And it's very weird on the Wisconsin Department of Corrections prisoner lookup system. It's not clear where he is. Um, some of the prisoners on the Wisconsin Department of Corrections um, prisoner lookup system, you can see how they've been transferred to different facilities. And it has like a lot of information about where they're housed. Not for him. Um, and of course, you know, we don't know whether to look him up by Nicole or by Mark. Um, I looked up both. Uh, There is a Mark Campbell with the correct birth year. His status reads no longer under doc doc supervision. So again, that's unclear. Was he under doc supervision because he was undergoing a gender transition surgery? And is he now in a women's prison? They wouldn't tell me. (laughs) Yeah. And that's a whole issue on its own that a prisoner, a convicted felon, would be able to have a taxpayer funded surgery for something that's elective. I feel like we could do a whole other podcast on just that issue on its own. But when it comes to prisons, it just seems kind of taboo to talk about protecting people's rights because they're in prison for breaking the law and possibly infringing on other human beings' rights. But there is a reason that gender-specific prisons exist in the first place, and more appropriately, I guess we should clarify, biologically gender-specific prisons. Why do you think that that's important and worth protecting? Well, it's absolutely important and worth protecting because every human being has dignity. Every human being is worthy of being treated with dignity. And, um, you know, these women who are incarcerated, they've been incarcerated for good reasons. That doesn't mean that they should be put in unsafe or dangerous situations. And when you're housing a woman with a man who's saying that he believes he's a woman, that man is not mentally stable. That man, if he truly believes he is a woman, is insane. Um, If he is saying that he is a woman because he has committed sex crimes and would like to be in prison with women, that is obviously a huge issue as well. Um, So we should be respecting the integrity of, um, you know, women's spaces. This has come up so many times in recent years. We we rarely see women that want to be in men's spaces. We typically see men that want to be in women's spaces. Mm -hmm. In this type of scenario, we need to be asking why. Yeah, absolutely. And your colleague, Mike Howell, who's the director of the Oversight Project, said that prison is for punishment, not degenerative sexual behavior. And I would add that prison is for 
correcting degenerate depraved behavior, not for encouraging it or perpetuating it, which is really what happens when you allow sex offenders to essentially choose a prison based on sex or on the sex that they want to be. Absolutely. And we shouldn't be. <laughs> it's a, it's absurd. You know, in this case of Mark Campbell, that you and I are having to pay for his gender transition surgery so that he can move to the prison of his choosing when he's already in jail for 34 years for raping his own daughter. I don't think that he should be getting preferential surgeries, especially on taxpayer dimes. Um, but that's, in fact, what's going on here. And we do need to get answers on whether he is in a woman's prison or not. And um, the American public deserves to know that if that is the case, because that is just so unacceptable on so many levels. Right. Yeah. Well, Mary Margaret, thank you so much for just digging into this topic and uncovering some of these details and following this issue. And we'll make sure that we keep following it as well. I'd love to have you back on for an update eventually, but just really appreciate your your research and persistence with this. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you for having me on. This is great. All right, Madison, appreciate that report on the podcast today. And that's going to leave us with time for one last thing. Yeah, Second John 1, 6. We talk a lot about love, right? But this verse really defines what love is. It says, and this is love that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love, right? So we talk about love in a very different way, but the way it's framed here is that love is also, it's obedience to God. Love God, yeah. love others, right? So it's just an important reminder as we talk about that topic. Yeah, absolutely. And a reminder that we have a responsibility, right? We have to, uh, we have things that we're expected to do here on this side of eternity. And even though God is sovereign, we have to do our part. We have to follow him. And what a great reminder there that it's just walking in love. It should be relatively easy, but it's not always. It's always a little easier said than done. Well, Lord willing, in that creek don't rise. We're going to return tomorrow with more. God bless. We'll see you then.